when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. G'day everyone, it's Baz Dubois and this is Hammer at Home. I feel as a race and me personally as an individual, I just don't think we're doing enough to nurture the planet and provide the cultural stability, the food and the environment that humans need to flourish. We all like to think we're doing the right thing, using our keep cups and avoiding one-use plastics, and we are. But there's so much more we have to do as a culture until we start valuing humanity, sustainability and the planet, we're just going to continue down the wrong track. This needs a complete rethink, and we are the only people that can guide that rethink. This series is a conversation about environmental sustainability, and I don't think you can have a conversation around environment without including my favourite, the built environment. So today, I've called in Rob Pufflett, a design architect with 40 years experience. Now, Rob lives in Sydney, and he's a principal at an international architectural practice, Thomson Adset. The first thing I want to know is how architecture and the built environment affects climate change. Well, you know, you could argue that buildings are the biggest polluters almost. Our energy footprint is determined by our lifestyles and the buildings we inhabit. There's no doubt about it. The built environment has been, for the last couple of centuries, quite onerous on the environment. But there are a lot of positives in architecture for humanity. Architecture is massively important in people's well-being. The built environment, the greening of spaces, the public domain, parks, gardens, landscapes and buildings are fundamental to how people feel in, in the city. I think sustainability in that regard is energy consumption. The cost of our carbon footprint is fundamental to that. Government is on board, a lot of the government architect in New South Wales, there's lots of greening, mapping of the cities, of the shade structures, of the urban heat island effect and these sorts of ideas, which is, you know, basically when you think of pavements and concrete and the road network, that, that all absorbs heat during the day and it re-radiates um, at night. As you can imagine, as the city has grown, we've just basically been covering that landscape with buildings and pavements. And that all just regenerates heat. And that heat is, you know, hard to dissipate. And then in Western Sydney, where the prevailing breezes aren't great, the effect of that landscape is that it's not very pleasant to live in. So you end up with air conditioning. You end up with a whole lot of other magnifying effects that are difficult to manage. You've just listed a whole bunch of things how detrimentally the built environment is affecting our natural environment. Who's charging that? Is that architects? Is that governments? Or is it consumer? I think it was the development sector led that in the you know, 19th century as the suburbs grew and then the industrialisation and footprint of industrial buildings in Western Sydney, you know, the massive amount of concrete, big buildings. And then I think, you know, people wanted suburban dwellings. So it was driven by a consumer response for immigrant culture that wanted a freestanding dwelling that they could own in a suburban landscape setting. And that's most Australian suburbs. 
as a race, as a community, we wanted to get out closer to nature, further out into the, to the rural areas. And by doing that, what we've effectively done is covered those beautiful green spaces in a cementitious material, which absorbs heat, holds it all night, really affecting the environment that we were chasing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a whole cultural bit of baggage in itself. But you think even now within, you know, three kilometres of the CBD, you can be in a detached dwelling in Glebe or Zetland or Alexandria. You know, it's extraordinary. It's not, not many cities in the world have that urban space so close to the city. Who's driving that? That's got to be a government. Well, government now is well on board and very mature in its thinking, looking at stormwater management and greening green belts and green grids and connectivity of parklands and things like that. And that will take a little while to have an effect, but it's certainly very, very high on the agenda. Everyone realises that global warming and policy can really change that. And certainly in the commercial buildings and the bigger buildings I'm working on, unless you have a sustainable agenda, it doesn't have a heartbeat. We're going to build apparently more homes this year than we ever have in the history of our country. What sort of effect do you think that's going to have on the environment? How much consideration do you think has been made for the fact that a lot of people will work and live in those homes? Where are we at with that, with, with what's happening in the short term? By far the biggest issue with home density is that the number of people living in a house is falling. Ten years ago, it was like 2.4 people per dwelling. Now it's like 1.6 or 1.7. So you need more dwellings for the same number of people. A lot of people living in big houses that don't change. So there needs to be more sort of churn in the built environment so people downsize, upsize, change when their life changes, which doesn't happen as much as it should. If you listen to the media, they'll tell us that there's a shortage of property in this country and the governments love going down that path. But I think America, the United States of America, has 3.9 people per household. And in our closest neighbours, it's up to 5.6. I think 1,000 people a week move to Sydney and you need to build about 340 houses for those 1,000 people. The demand curve is way behind the supply curve. If those 1,000 people that move to Sydney need 300 houses, we're only building 100. So the pressure in the market is driving the cost of those 100 to an exponential level. So they're paying more for them. And that's a, a very sweet spot for your average property developer. And so that's why the developers are always looking uh, to build more. What would be the most damning piece of built environment or architecture that we've seen as a society on the environment? <laughs> is, is that a list too long to... Uh... Well, you know, I think the perspective on these things change. And I think a building that was cheap to make... Like our, our society doesn't value design in a sense and we build cheap buildings and often they perform poorly climatically, their heat mass is low, their energy consumption is high. Now, so I think the day-to-day travesty is that the value of the environment isn't reflected in dollar terms, you know, that buildings are built cheaply and poorly but their environmental cost is relatively high and yet the economy doesn't dovetail those two values systems. I've said since I was a, a builder, anything that is built for the state, that is built for the people, lasts forever. But anything that is built for profit seems to only have a 40-year lifespan. So what you're saying is because we don't value a, a building for anything but profit, it's actually far more environmentally expensive. 
So our biggest travesty, in your opinion, would be not to put the money in in the beginning so it doesn't cost us more money in the end. Yeah, yeah. And you're around quality and, you know, bang for your buck that you can still buy, uh, and you know this better than me, Baz, a project home for 1100 bucks a square metre on a flat site in Western Sydney, but it's going to cost a lot to run. We've talked a lot already about cramming individual houses in smaller areas. What are the failures that you see we continually persist with when it comes to urban design? Well, I think the failure is the building of new suburban places that are not connected. You know, that you build in Brinjelli or Wilton or... And these are out of suburbs in Sydney, but this happens in any capital city. It does. And then there's no public transport, there's no schools, no shops. They're not connected places. And I think increasingly the better design statements are places that are connected, that the social fabric is there beforehand, the schools, public transport, the social infrastructure is there so that when the population grows, it has a sort of fabric to weld into. What you're saying is a a community shouldn't just grow in numbers, it should develop as a society. Yeah. And when you think about the numbers around uh, small retail malls and, you know, they're popular around the whole of Australia, where you're at a bank, a supermarket, a pharmacy, a a newsagent, and then probably for for that little group of shops, you probably need 5,000 people. And now there's the coffee culture and there's a bar and a restaurant and a cafe. So that little centre now has 10 or 15,000 people that are connected to it. And then off that springs the GP and the chemist and the gyms. You know, a suburb is a connected group of places and those places aren't ever in isolation. We think the city is made of uh, bits that are isolated. They're not. They're all connected. And everything we do is, in effect, you know, a connected place. And as we know, you know, loneliness, isolation and boredom, these diseases of the suburbs, it's important that the psychological well-being of everybody is looked after by being connected. I think the market now is really gravitating towards better urban design outcomes in terms of water use and solar cells and battery charging and public car parks. And That's an interesting one in itself. I mean, I live in Bondi Beach and I have tanks. I collect as much rainwater as I possibly can from, from the roof of my home. I try and recycle even some of the grey water where possible, but still when we create a, a new urban suburb, we don't collect the stormwater. It, it still runs. The, the sewerage is still isn't seen as an asset. It's seen as a waste product. So we're not utilising these things that are going to come naturally. How important is it to utilise Mother Nature and things like waste? The stormwater, I think, is the classic in this landscape, you know, that we put it in some engineering infrastructure under the road and throw it out to sea instead of polishing. Obviously, it's got some pollutants in it, so you've got to be careful how you could use it. But there are, if you look at Green Square or parts of the city, you know, they're really starting to look at water-sensitive urban design strategies. But the fundamental infrastructure is still 19th century curb and gutter and drains. Yeah, it's clear that's where we're falling down. We're living in a space age. But when it comes to our waste, we're still treating that with a horse and cart type mentality. Well, the newer places that are being developed by Stockland and Lendlease and some of these big subdividers, they're really starting to think about this stuff early. Sure, at the end of the day, they're building brick veneer houses, which are undervalued, but the framework that those dwellings all sit on is improving. We're looking to develop societies. We want them to be better than they were yesterday. 
And we also have to worry about our what's in our pocket. Is it more expensive to do an environmentally friendly urban development? I would say no, because the life cycle costing is not taken into consideration. You know, if you think about building with materials that are, are not going to last, like you talked about the public domain before and public buildings being, you know, made of sandstone and masonry and solid construction, whilst that's not the way a project home a suburb is typically developed. But if it were to be developed in a more sustainable way, where the fabric is uh, in the short term possibly more expensive, but in the long term, if uh, energy audits were taken into consideration, embodied energy, life cycle costing of plant and equipment and all those intangible things that you think are expensive when you buy them, but in the long term, they would be much more valued in a sustainable sense for the community. So what can government do? Government could say, well, you know, solar cells and batteries are free, for instance, or there's a, a, you know, a big subsidy for a feed-in tariff, which they did a few years ago, but they're not doing now. They could build incentives for people to make good decisions about um, water-sensitive urban design and catching their roof water and doing all these little things. Because if lots of small parties do those things, the numbers all of a sudden change, like we're seeing in these community batteries around the country. Explain to us what a community battery is. Community batteries are where, let's say in the suburb of Malabar, there are 95 houses with photovoltaic arrays and not all of them have battery systems, but they all can plug into one another's battery system. So the community owns the batteries and can feed off them. It's a shared storage resource for a photovoltaic system. And so it becomes a little micro power station. Community batteries are going to change the power grid structure. Back to you. If you could have a magic bullet around sustainability, where do you think you'd aim that? Yeah, it's a good question asking me that. I've been building for over 40 years. I've never started a structure or a development without a plan. And I don't think that we have the right plan to go forward. And I blame government for this. We put in knee-jerk reaction ideas in place. Those are generally funded, those ideas, by developers who will profit from the way government legislates. Why would you put a brick wall on a Western facade in Australia? It's just going to soak up sun all day. I was putting up brick walls 40 years ago and I said to myself, only a couple of years in, this isn't a good way to build. But we'll be doing that wrong for another 20 years. We need to understand that if business affects environment, it's not good for the people. And we need a plan for a more sustainable life. I think that's fundamentally right, that the built environment is like a tool of life that is fundamental to your well-being. But it also goes with being healthy, being well, having great food and friendships and love in your life. You know, there's a whole lot of other dimensions to a functioning culture. The built environment in that sense is, is you know, you get what you pay for and we haven't valued it. And I think that that is changing. We're sort of experiencing the cost of poor design now, though. And you feel that governments are changing and, and it's up for us to put our money where we can see that people are trying to make changes. Yeah. And, you know, the investment in public transport is going to change the city, you know, in four or five years' time. I think we're going to have a completely different place. You won't reach for your car keys when you think you're going out. You'll go, oh, how could I get there? Smarter people than me have said that we've got about 11 years to get this right because then we will have passed the point of no return. What's architecture in the cities and in the, uh, the suburbs look like in 10 years from now? Can we make it? Oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm really confident we can make it. 
I think it's going to be largely around making a sort of person-orientated public domain that's of a scale and a shape that people can relate to and that uh, have ownership of. And I think the, the smaller plays that are around the suburbs and the new townships that are coming up, they've got a fine grain to them that's quite interesting. I think those places will grow in an interesting way and, and we will end up with, with Sydney, you know, with Parramatta and with Western Sydney, there'll be these 20-minute, half-an-hour hubs and they'll be pretty autonomous, which would be a, a fantastic radial plan. I think the burning question for us is about sort of sustainability of materials. You buy plastic laminate or, you know, anything that you buy, but what's the real cost of that? Car manufacturers and computer manufacturers are all now thinking pretty highly about recycling. But in the built environment, we're not, we don't think like that yet. We demolish buildings and they just go into landfill. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. By now, you would have heard me talk a heap about hemp and how it should be used more. So I thought it was time to speak to someone who knows a little bit more about that than I do. Owen Barber-Woods is a young environmental scientist and entrepreneur from Melbourne. He sees great value in hemp and he's using it to create protective wear through his company, Kempt. So Owen, what is it about hemp that appeals? My sister bought me a hemp t-shirt when I was 15 years old, I think I was. She brought it back from London. It uh, ended up being my favorite t-shirt. I wore it every day and it just never smelt. If it did get a little bit stinky, I just hang it on the line and it would air out. It was strong. It never like warped. It never lost its color. I still have it to this day. But all of that made me wonder why my other clothes were breaking a lot faster and I was having to throw them out. So why is hemp a better fiber than other materials for things like clothing? What is it about hemp that makes hemp hemp? It's a lot stronger and more durable. It's a lot easier to grow. It doesn't require herbicides or pesticides generally, depending on what region of the world you grow it, and therefore becomes a much more sustainable um, fibre to create things out of. There's lots of things besides clothes as well. There's rope and string and twine and things that used to be traditionally hemp, like sails on boats. Now there's a lot of um, stuff in construction as well, like hempcrete, which is a hemp concrete alternative, which is meant to be very good. And paper as well was originally made of hemp, stuff like that. You mentioned building materials. Our first settlers uh, to this country learned from Indigenous people who had been using hemp for, for thousands of years that they'd woven together. And they used that to tie the bark for their humpies and their types of construction. 
Well, the uh, English settlers realised that the hemp string and rope was a much better product than that than what they'd brought from England. So they used it a lot in construction after that. It was used also for insulation. It was used for binding things together. It was seen as extremely strong and could withstand all sorts of weather. But also what I find interesting is it's antimicrobial. So things like mould and bacteria just won't grow on it ever, which I find amazing. That is amazing. I've heard that the Chinese army make their uniforms out of hemp because it has antibacterial qualities. So you're less likely to get an infection. What are the other reasons we should be using hemp rather than polyester and cotton and that sort of thing, particularly here in Australia? As an example of the way it's bad for the environment, every time you wash your polyester clothing, lots of little fibres come out and go down the drain and end up in the sea, which has huge environmental effects. But also this ends up in fish that we eat and it can often end up in our guts, which is also bad for human health. As for cotton, I think the main thing for me, there's a lot of argument about what's better and what's economically better, environmentally better and everything else. But the biggest thing for me is the chemical use of herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers, which conventionally cotton requires a lot of, particularly with the way we do it here in Australia, whereas hemp would not require that at all, basically. Because of its nature, its its predecessor, which has a lot of, as some people might know, a lot of molecules in it that can cause psychoactive effects. It's therefore a natural insect repellent. They don't want to eat it because they'll, uh, they might have a little panic attack. It will not be great for them. So what you're saying is the reason hemp doesn't require pesticides is because the animals have worked out that if they eat it, they're going to get stoned. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> That's a part of it, I think, yes. There's a few other things as well. It's interesting, a fact that I've heard is, not that I've tried it myself, an 100% hemp garment and you soak it in water and put it in the bottom of your backpack and say go backpacking and leave that in there for a whole year. When you take it out at the end, it will not smell, it will not have mold growing on it or any bacteria. It will still be clean because of the antimicrobial properties. Hemp is great in the wash in that any fibers that come off are completely harmless to us and anything living in the waterways where it might end up. Hemp is a lot better than cotton in that regard. Your cotton garments will still have residual amounts of these herbicides and pesticides and any chemicals that were used in the textile production process still within them. So for a few washes, for the first few washes, that will be coming out and going down the drain as well as the dyes and so on and ending up just like the polyester fibers in the waterways, in the fish, in us potentially. Do we grow a lot of hemp in Australia? No, not much at all. Why aren't we growing hemp in Australia and why are we growing cotton in Australia? There's a global market for cotton that's already quite solidified. I think the statistic is Australian cotton makes $2 billion a year on the global market, whereas hemp is something like $100 million or something. It's got a long way to go. It's basically not profitable because it's completely unsubsidised by the government, whereas other crops such as cotton and wheat and Things like that are heavily subsidised, which make the end product that us consumers buy far cheaper. Cotton has years and years of us playing with its genomes and breeding out things that we don't like and breeding in things that we do like, like we have done with dogs and so on. Like, I want this one to have floppier ears, so I'll breed these two that have floppy ears. And the next, the baby will essentially have floppier ears, as a funny example. 
But then hemp, because it's been so illegal because of its negative connotations with drug use and so on, we haven't had all those years of breeding that the cotton has had. Things like pest resistance and growing in certain uh, latitudes, climates, it makes it more ideal and therefore cost effective. Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> It is complicated, but pretty basically, is Australia an environment suited to growing hemp? Parts of Australia, yes. I would say mainly in the subtropics, where there is a good amount of rain. It's similar to cotton, actually. Cotton should be grown where there's a fair amount of rain, so you don't have to irrigate too much out of local rivers and so on. Most of the cotton in Australia is grown under irrigation. So what sort of impact do things like irrigation and pesticides have on the environment around them? And what are the long-term effects of using water, essentially recycling it through irrigation, but then taking back pesticides to the native streams and so on? Not a huge expert of the Australian situation, but from what I know globally, it has in other places dried up the groundwater which is a great source of water to all the local trees and everything. Pesticide and herbicide runoff is a huge problem at the moment because the way they're designed is the seed that you want to grow, you have one big farm, say, of wheat, and then they have genetically modified this wheat so it is resistant to this pesticide or herbicide that they've created. So the pesticide or herbicide does not hurt that plant, but it hurts most things that grow around it. So something that is designed in that way, the wheat will be fine, but everything else from the, the microorganisms live in the soil to the weeds, to the insects, to the birds, will all be affected by this introduction of this chemical, which then can run off into the groundwater, the local rivers, and have far greater impacts than what it is originally designed to do locally on that farm. So what you're saying is that the pesticides and the chemicals that go into growing crops that have been genetically modified have a catastrophic sort of effect on the natural biodiversity. Yes, yes, exactly. Which is arguably one of the most important things of our time, I think, is preserving this biodiversity. It's my understanding that a hell of a lot more water is used in the creation of a cotton t-shirt as opposed to a hemp t-shirt. For example, tell me if this is right, something along the lines of 2,700 litres of water to create one cotton t-shirt. Wow, that's mad. Mind-boggling, actually. And about 300 litres of water to create a hemp t-shirt. I mean, even 300 litres sounds like an incredible amount of water to create these sorts of fabrics. Can you help me understand why we would even consider that? Most of that water use is within the factories and not on the farm level. The bulk of the water used to make that cotton t-shirt is in the factory setting, turning the fiber into a textile that is then woven into the t-shirt. The water on the cotton farm is only a little bit extra than on the hemp farm, but the main difference is that a lot of pesticide and herbicide is also used and cotton is largely irrigated. So the water that runs off from that goes into the local river systems and destroys biodiversity and harms, harms much more than we understand. So effectively, it's not a sustainable thing. Even if you just look at the commerciality of it, eventually we're not going to have the water that we can reuse for anything. So eventually it'll just be a wasteland. Yeah, even now we require a lot of inputs of fertilizers which have nitrogen and phosphorus which also just won't last forever. There's phosphorus mines aren't unlimited 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how we heal our soils and our local waterways. If Australians or Australian corporations were to start growing hemp as a product that they would one day use instead of cotton, how would that, being that it's an indigenous crop, affect the biodiversity of the land compared to something like cotton? Well, for starters, it would reduce the herbicide and pesticide use, which would have an amazing effect on water health, soil health, human health, all, all animal health. Hemp is not necessarily the, uh, the be-all, end-all answer to our environmental farming and everything problems, but it's more the style. I think, I think if we farmed hemp just the same as we farmed cotton in these massive plantations where it's just one type of plant, no, so no diversity, and we, we, we kill anything that we don't want, say pests or fungus that comes in and it might, might attack the plants. We kill anything we want with chemicals or even if they're natural herbicides. I just don't think that style of farming will ever be environmentally friendly, basically. You've studied environmental science, you're a budding entrepreneur, and you've seen a market that benefits the planet in owning a sustainable clothing company. You see getting involved in commerce as a way to send a message through sustainability? Well, with the, the hemp business, Kemp, the idea originally was just to make useful garments such as gloves and aprons and overalls out of a material that I believed we should be growing more of and thereby increasing awareness about this product and therefore hopefully creating an Australian market. So we could be growing more hemp here and then we would be making things like everything from rope to my what I've decided to create to the sails on, on people's sailing boats and the like we said before, the hemp that's used in construction. If we could do that within Australia, I, I believe that would be a small step but an amazing step towards sustainability. So Owen, you're a millennial. Yes. <laughs> now, what's the view of you millennials when it comes to the problems us baby boomers have created? What's your view on what's been done? And what things do you think we can do to slow down the damage and maybe even reverse it? Hmm. I definitely don't, the first part of that question, I definitely don't judge the baby boomers or you, Baz. I think if I was in your position, I would have gone along with it all as well. It was it seemed too good to be true, I guess. It's, everything was abundant. There were jobs everywhere. The world was healthy. Well, more healthy than it is now. Things to reverse it, though. I think one of the main things is um, trying to live more locally within your community. How to do that is a very big issue as well, and I'm, I definitely don't have the answers. But um, I think if people were encouraged to know their farmers and know who produces the things that they consume, they would end up consuming less. And I think they'd have develop a greater respect for the way the things that they consume are, are made. And at the end of it, I think reducing our consumption on a whole, everything we consume, would be the main way that we could fight all the environmental issues we have today. Do you think climate change is a very important topic? And does it need to be worked on and changed in your lifetime? It is a very important topic. But I think it takes the main stage a bit too much in that we talk a lot about CO2 emissions, which is a, a big problem, of course, but then we don't talk about all the other environmental problems we cause that lead to the CO2 emissions, I guess. Like, like we were just talking about with um, the herbicide and pesticide use, that's not really connected to climate change the same way as taking a plane to Europe is connected to climate change. But it all adds up. It has run-on effects that affect the way 
the local environment works, which has you know worked for many, many millions of years to keep a steady, a relatively steady climate, if that makes sense. <laughs> Well, we're almost at the end of our journey to a more environmentally sustainable future. Join me next time when we'll be looking back on what we've learned over the last couple of episodes, reminding ourselves why environmental sustainability matters and finding out what you can do to live your best life. I'm Barry Dubois and this has been Hammer at Home. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.